0: oh, we can't make people feel uncomfortable because we don't want to talk about slavery. We don't want to talk about the 1619 Project. But it's like, you're not supposed to feel comfortable when you learn about history. You're supposed to learn it and learn from it.
1: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford.
2: And I'm Ricky
0: Schlott.
1: Well, Corey, what do we have today?
0: Well, coming up, Biden celebrates one year in office with near record low approval ratings. We dive into our theories as to why Biden isn't resonating with voters. Then people are outraged after Warriors part owner said that nobody cares about China's repression of Uyghurs. Was he out of line or just telling the truth? Then Ravi gives us his take on why the New York attorney general's investigation into the Trump organization is compromised. And finally, Ricky brings us the latest on Rolled Back COVID-19 restrictions in england but first things first let's talk a little bit about what's going on in florida lawmakers there are continuing their battle against critical race theory republicans advanced the individual freedom bill this week it aims to prevent private businesses and schools from compelling anyone to believe they are responsible for the past actions of their race or should be forced to feel discomfort or guilt on account of their race or sex Critics of the bill say it amounts to censorship and could lead to frivolous lawsuits. Its supporters, however, say the bill would make sure students aren't being indoctrinated. Now, the Associated Press ran an article on the bill that read Florida could shield whites from discomfort of racist past. News outlets picked it up across the country, though the bill never explicitly mentions white people or even race in that manner. So, um, Robbie and Ricky, I mean, the, the Florida GOP is pushing this bill and as far as i know the republican party has always been about free speech local control small government i don't see any of that going on with this bill so what is what is going on
1: here right and i think you know what's interesting in this discussion is we've each played a critical role in the education system very recently you know i was a school principal and superintendent you're a parent Ricky, you were probably most recently in school, um, I think just last coming time. out of the university <laughs> last month. So I think we all have experience with the school system. And I think we bring that lens here. And I think of, as a, a school principal whose kids were 90 plus percent African-American kids in the South, I think of this both from the perspective of the kind of discussions we want kids to have within school buildings, but also just how easy or hard it is to run a school. And I have a few problems with this piece of legislation with that lens in mind. Number one is that In the legislation, it says an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex does not bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. And I think what I take issue with here is the word responsibility, because if they had replaced it with fault— this legislation would have resonated with me more, meaning people aren't at fault for things that people have done in the past. But I think we're all responsible for them in the sense that, you know, the fault is about things that maybe we didn't have any control about, so it's not your fault. But we're all citizens of this country, and we should want to rectify those things. We, and, and I think that we should, in our schools, we should be, that should be like a, a central point of focus in our civics lessons. Like, how do we actually wrap our arms around this difficult past that we've had and actually make it better leading into the future.
2: I agree with that. And I also think, you know, I'm a little sympathetic to the idea behind the bill because I do, I mean, I saw myself, I was in school being segregated out into affinity groups and sent to different buildings to talk to people of different races about racial issues on MLK day of all days in my high school, which felt a little ironic. So I've seen how there are problematic things that are happening in schools, but I as especially as a libertarian, I don't like this bill specifically um, because it's. I do think that it's probably constitutional for K to twelve teachers because they don't really have a lot of First Amendment rights when they're in their duties. But I don't like that it's applying to private businesses as well. And I especially don't like that it's about how someone feels rather than the intent. I think that intent is a pretty clear kind of metric of if I intend to intimidate you based on an immutable characteristic that could be potentially problematic versus if you feel that way. And, you know, I do agree with the idea that this could lead to frivolous lawsuits that are completely subjective. Um so I don't like the I think there's there's some merit to what they're trying to go after, but I don't like the mechanism that they're doing it. And I also think that, you know, school boards and smaller scale solutions are always better in a more decentralized kind of way.
0: It seems as though when you look at the language of this bill, it doesn't mention critical race theory. But when it talks about things like Making sure people don't feel guilt, and that kind of brings up this idea of white guilt, and it t- talks about things about making sure we're not teaching that one side is more privileged than another just because of their race or sex. So it seems like they're definitely targeting what the conversation about critical race theory has been about over these last few months. Yeah, I think this question of white privilege is so tricky
1: because any one individual could be more or less privileged than another. Be you know, like there's a, a low income white, for example, who's. Less privileged than me as a brown person in this country, undoubtedly I've met many of those people, and so it would be insulting to that person for me to tell them that they're, you know, they've got some privilege that I don't have. Like I'm sure that there are certain rooms that they can walk into where they're accepted more than I am, but I feel like it's often a very sloppy conversation, Uh, and so I don't want that world where where we're just telling people in these very large, sloppy and kind of general ways who they are and who they aren't. And we're not trying to be more precise. But at the same time, I also wouldn't want a classroom to be barred from talking about systemic issues that people face or trends or wealth gaps and you know, the, the tie between slavery and the economic conditions that we have today. I think that's a part of the country that we live in. And I think students can handle that. Teachers can handle that. And I think any effort to shield people from those discussions makes them worse citizens. And it, it makes it harder for us to solve some of these problems. And I totally agree with Ricky that, you know, this thing is so vague and subjective. You know, I was I was thinking about Ben Shapiro. Last time I checked his Twitter feed, he, it says, facts don't care about your feelings. And what I'm wondering is like what what does he have to say about this law? Because this is all about feelings and not about facts. Like as Ricky said, like it's all has to do with like whether or not the intent or even what's in the lesson, if you feel, for instance, anguish and guilt over a lesson over our failures in Reconstruction or our dark history with slavery, then there's a cause of action here. Like, is that that's kind of what this law seems to imply?
0: Well, Manny Diaz Jr., the Florida lawmaker who's basically uh, pushed this bill, basically was saying that the bill aims to prevent teachers from forcing people to feel a certain way based off of history, but doesn't prevent them from teaching these things in history. And I just think back to like, when I was in the sixth grade, I had a teacher who was big on teaching about the Civil War because I was in fifth grade or sixth grade in Alabama. So we learned a lot about the Civil War. And I remember them asking the question- The war of Northern aggression? Uh, yeah, yes, something like that. the <laughs> war between the states. And I remember him asking a question to the kids who did not, it was our first you know lesson in the, into the Civil War. And he was like, what is the Civil War battle that marked the turning point for the union? And all the kids raised their hands, and said, Gettysburg, Gettysburg, Gettysburg. And they're, You're all wrong. And then I raised my hand and said, oh, no, it's Vicksburg. And he was like, how did you know that? And I was like, because this is the third time I've had to learn about the Civil War. And I had to learn about it like four out of 12 grades in Alabama. And yet we're trying to make it where oh, we can't make people feel uncomfortable because we don't want to talk about slavery. We don't want to talk about the 1619 Project. But it's like, you're not supposed to feel comfortable when you learn about history. You're just supposed to learn it and learn from it. And I feel like this bill is aimed at it could be aimed at really removing any teachings about slavery, any teachings about Jim Crow laws, any teachings about Reconstruction, because any of that can make you feel uncomfortable. And it could also be used in the other direction. I mean, an African-American or someone who's Hispanic could say, well, this conversation makes me feel uncomfortable. So they could use this legislation to say, well, then, you know, I'm going to sue this school because they taught a certain lesson that made me feel uncomfortable. So this is going down a really simply slope, in my opinion.
1: Right. Yeah. And I want to agree with one thing that, that Ricky said, you know, based on her experience just being in the school system, and I left being a superintendent in 2016. And I totally agree with what you're saying, and I think this goes too far. There is a problem out there to be solved. I think it's being there's so many things lumped together with critical race theory, mm-hmm. right? It's you know there's legitimate lessons of history which you're talking about. There are diversity, equity, inclusion trainings. There are things like inherent bias trainings, intersectionality, intersectionality, yeah. like and and these concepts keep changing, and it's often hard to pin people down and what they mean. Mm-hmm. As a an educator. I saw some of the earlier versions of this before we called it CRT in these public debates and I think there's a lot of bad pedagogy going on out there like mm-hmm. I remember like I would fight with TFA for example which went from an reform oriented organization to an organization that was training like what they saw as activists and what they and what they were interpreting as activism within the classroom was teaching their teachers and creating a sort of perception that skills like math, reading emphasis, um, high behavioral expectations, extended school days, even standardized testing are all racist tools of oppression. And they're and they're basically taking a lot of privileged white kids lib- and and you know largely liberal kids, putting them into largely uh, classrooms, uh, you know where there's mostly people of color in the south, teaching them to be feel guilty about it and manifest that guilt by. Uh, questioning whether we should be teaching people skills or not or having high expectations of everybody in the classroom. And to me, that's pernicious. Should it be outlawed? No. Like we should debate it. We should discuss it. We should confront it. Uh, I think outlawing it does nearly nothing because then you're going to have your blue states double down on it. The red states won't have it private schools like, you know, who knows in this bill I guess they wouldn't be able to do it either and I think we should just put this stuff surface it. I think people on the left should acknowledge this stuff exists. I've spent a yeah. lifetime on the left. I'm in, I've been in so many rooms where versions of these theories have dominated and you cannot question them lest you be accused of racism. Uh so they are real, but are they as real to the extent that people are describing? I looked really hard to find too many examples in Florida. I couldn't. I mean there were a couple of examples that came to the surface, but this doesn't seem to be an epidemic in Florida.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the most important thing to remember in K to 12 is that like the courts have held that students have freedom of conscience. And as soon as a teacher is taking sort of an activist indoctrination stance, rather than just presenting facts that could potentially be violating their rights because at a public school, they are a captive audience. The It's a compulsory attendance sort of situation. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think, you know, academic freedom doesn't Applied to K-12 in the same way that it does with higher education, but especially this conversation about rooting out specific conversations in higher ed, that's super concerning to me and and dancing around history or reorienting it now because there's a potential that you'd be held liable for making people uncomfortable is really um, concerning. And I think that a potential solution is for a bill like this to say, you know, you can't do affinity groups in public schools. Like that would be a specific targeted issue that is divisive and that could be clearly proven if someone did it or, I mean, I guess that could be debated, but, you know, you need to have more specific depth to bills like this so you don't end up chilling speech because that's the worst thing you can possibly do.
1: And you're a a fellow at FIRE, right? Mm -hmm. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And and correct me if I'm wrong, FIRE came out against a different bill in Florida that uh, I think it required professors to, or like it it, it protected the right of students to to, uh, record their professors. Mm. What was that all about?
2: I'm not sure, to be honest. But I do actually, I pulled a, I do know that they came against a Florida bill, but I did pull a quote from Greg Lukianoff, who's the president of FIRE, responding to bills that are worded exactly like this one. And he said, um, like frivolous lawsuits, are always an issue when speech restrictions focus on concepts characterized by a subjective reaction like discomfort or guilt without making absolutely clear that the regulation is targeting behavior intended to create that response in students. So he's the organization under the president has explicitly come down against uh, bills that are just subjectively. Um, coming against speech that makes people feel uncomfortable, so.
0: Absolutely. Well, now on to our next story. Joe Biden marks one year in office today. It's
2: been a year of challenges, but it's also been a year of enormous progress.
0: But nobody seems to be celebrating. His approval ratings are in the tank, just under 42%, despite overseeing a rebound in the job market, passing a COVID-19 relief bill, and a landmark infrastructure package, and getting nearly two-thirds of Americans fully vaccinated. The country is struggling with decades, high- inflation and a never-ending pandemic so let's just open up this to a conversation why do people hate Joe Biden so much
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I mean, they hate him.
0: Well, yeah. I, I
1: think that Biden is not in as bad shape as we think. And I'm going to play my role here as a former Democratic staffer. And yeah. I'm going an to emphasize on former because we're yeah. C3. But <laughs> 538 puts Biden's approval rating today uh, at 41.9 percent. Mm-hmm. Trump, interestingly, was at 39.5 percent at the same time, uh, but pretty much historically. Biden is in pretty bad shape. You know, Obama mm-hmm. was 49.8 at this period. W was 81.2. You know, wow. this is post 9/11. 9-11. Clinton was 56.5. Reagan was 48.9. So uh, Biden is definitely in bad shape. But I do want to point out that the last president was even worse uh, and came rather close to winning reelection. And so uh, this is by no means dispositive for Biden. But I think if for thinking about Democrats They've got very little time between now and the midterms to change perceptions. And we'll talk about what's driving those perceptions in a second. But and second though, by the time he Biden gets to re-election, there is historical precedence for major swings between the end of your first year in office and the the re-elect. Like I looked at a couple of examples. George W. went from above 80 to about 50 on election day. So this was a negative swing. His father had a, a very similar swing. Mm-hmm. Reagan, on the other hand, is an example of how you go up. So Reagan was at about 50 and then was above 60 by election day. And obviously he won his reelection. And so there, there is precedent for major swings one way or the other. And so if I were in the sort of metaphorical locker room with Democrats, I would say, you know, put your chin up and get focused on, you know, just continue the work. But if I were in the Republican locker room, I'd
0: probably be feeling pretty good at at halftime here. What are some of the major criticisms as far as just job performance? I mean, as far as what Biden promised, he promised to obviously get COVID-19 under control, which hasn't done that. But he also promised a return to normalcy, kind of mirrors like 1920, that same election. There was a guy who promised a return to normalcy. Not a word, by the way. Um, But (laughs) I mean, has he done that? Is is this normal? What we're dealing with right
2: now? I mean, I think... It's a little strange to a lot of voters that he campaigned as sort of a moderate back to the old school way kind of candidate. But then he has rolled out the most progressive agenda in presidential history. So that's an inconsistency. And I think that there were a lot of people that voted for him, hoping that it would feel like a cohesive United Nation again, going back to a guy who's been around the block since like he was a baby, basically, in politics. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I don't think that's what we've gotten. I think we've gotten some some very progressive uh bills passed and some also i mean we also at the same time haven't gotten built back better or the voting rights bill which was promised to people on the left but then we have the immigration crisis. There is the issue in Afghanistan. Every single day, people are paying way more for their groceries, and we're printing money kind of endlessly and looking to print more, which could exacerbate inflation even further. There's supply chain issues. There's the issue of COVID and how, you know, we were promised tests from essentially day one that Biden got in office, and now we only just got around to that, and it takes seven to 12 days to actually get the test to you, which feels a little counterproductive. So I think that there's a lot of promises made and not kept. I mean, for me personally, as a libertarian, the biggest one was saying there won't be a vaccine mandate. And then there was a vaccine mandate. And then our Supreme Court had to go through the whole process of shooting that down. Like. That sort of thing is pretty disappointing
1: well one thing i hear in in what you're saying ricky is a little bit of a catch-22 which is like he he wants to do all these progressive things but one of the reasons why we're scoring him as not successful is because he didn't pass all those progressive oh yeah things. i think
2: it's different factions like yeah. from the left he's his approval ratings low across the board yes. right. from my vantage point as a libertarian like i don't i want like almost no government spending i don't want the the federal government to Grow in size. And that's I mean, that's just those are my personal qualms. But from the people on the left, that's a pretty big uh loss. And for the people on the right, there are a whole other swath of issues. And then for the people in the middle who just kind of wanted like a steady middle of the road guy, in some ways, that's not what we're getting.
1: Yeah. Well, let me let me defend Biden a little bit here. <laughs> so Carvel famously said it's the economy stupid. And I actually think that as we sit right now, especially if if you think about like if the key drivers of inflation in the supply chain, like this is the big if, if those mitigate over the course of the next year and Biden maintains the economic recovery you know, and thinking about unemployment, for example, is at 3.9% right now from 6.7% a year before that. Real wages, even after taking into account inflation, are actually up for the lowest third of Americans. It's the the upper two thirds that are actually struggling more in terms of wage plus inflation, which is counterintuitive to even some of the reporting that we've done recently. Um, So let's say that the economic recovery continues, but the supply chain and inflation issues mitigate that to me is this the key to, to Biden getting out of this mess because mm-hmm. the economy is drives uh, you know voter perception so much. But yeah. then he's gotten the infrastructure bill passed. He's gotten more judges confirmed than any president since Reagan in his first year. Um, he promised 100 million vaccine doses in the first hundred days, and he exceeded that. So if you look at his record. You, com- you, you put that all on one side and that's super positive. And obviously there are a lot of shortcomings. There's Afghanistan, um, there's been the herky-jerky CDC, uh, you know, almost erratic communication and policy changes. There's the obviously major rises in inflation and then the simple fact that Biden can't complete a sentence in any way that's lucid and <laughs> compelling to the American voters. And so I think this is an even fight right now between Biden
0: and himself. Yeah, since about 2017, we've had to struggle with a president being able to complete sentences. But I just want to I just want to pull this back. All of the stuff you just said is great, but inflation being as high as it is, it's higher now than it has been since the 70s or at least the early 80s. And. All the gains we've made, whether it's the stimulus checks that were passed, whether it was higher wages, whether it's lower unemployment, none of that matters if our dollar isn't stretching more. Like if we're having to pay more, then all of that is pretty much it's pretty much a zero sum. Like it's just it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But also, when it comes to the presidency, a lot of it is about image. And right now, Joe Biden's image is corrupted, one by a lot of things that Ricky was saying, that he promised to be this middle of road guy and yet. We hear a lot of divisive language from him. I mean, the voting rights thing, I agree with the voting rights bill, but to say that if you don't agree with it, you're Jefferson Davis, I mean, that's a very extreme statement and that's not going to bring anybody together. That's not going to convince anybody on the other side or in the middle to then support voting rights because you're just going to push them further away. So him doing things like that is very problematic, but also just, like I said, there's just an image problem with Joe Biden and he can't combat this because the left wants him to the left, you know, the Democrat Party is controlled by a sort of moderate left. But the left left, like the loony left, they control social media and that controls the perception of things. And they don't like Joe Biden. They don't like uh, Kamala Harris. They think that they're just, you know, these corporate Democrats and they don't think that they're true progressives. And the right literally wants him to fail because that'll make them you know, look better when it comes to elections. So there's really no there's, it's like he's damned if he do, damned if he doesn't in this particular yeah.
2: case especially when you look back at biden's record i think that's an issue with the left particularly because he he was one of the architects of the crime bills in the 90s he was one of the architects of the student loan debt that now he's campaigning to forgive and so there's a long track record kind of discrepancy with him but um one thing that i really feel like ends up getting missed in these conversations about kind of like dunking on presidents or promoting your own side is that ultimately as americans in the end like even if it's not your party, even if even if you're dissatisfied with Biden this far, like we should all be rooting for his approval rating to improve for this country to get better and not like worrying about anything other than just America succeeding and our president who's at the helm that the people elected succeeding ultimately.
1: Yeah. And I, point. I think on the Biden stuff about his record, like he hit. Part of it is he's been in the Senate, I think, since before I was born. Certainly before you two were born.
2: Yeah, he had to wait until his birthday to get sworn in because yeah. he was that young when he got elected. Thirty. Now
1: he's right? so old. Yeah, yeah now he's <laughs> old. But, but part of that, and this is, and I feel like I'm the press secretary for Biden here, and mm-hmm. so um, it's almost embarrassing. But the mm-hmm. he, I would want him to evolve. You know, that's part mm-hmm. of it. Is like I, I would want him to grow and change his positions over that period of time. And in many ways, to me, that would be his litmus test to stay in office. Now. That being said, everything positive I've said about Biden, I think it would be really smart for Biden, for the country to not run again. I, mm-hmm. I think it would be a shame if we had a replay of the you know, 70, 80-year-old versus the 70, year old yeah. again. I think if if Biden didn't run, and Trump didn't run, and we made room for new blood within these elections, I I think most Americans would be happy with that experience. And, you know, maybe some new ideas, some new energy, you know, shave a couple decades off of the average age of the people running this country. Like, I think that would be welcome. Because I think as much as I'm I'm straining to talk about the positives uh, of his first year, nobody who's honest can look at him and say, this is the best that we've got in this country right now and i'm sure like if you pressed him he'd probably admit that too
0: well, as long as we just don't say, let's go, Brandon, I think we had a really constructive conversation <laughs> about this particular issue. Now on to a video that is causing backlash across Twitter. The NBA's Golden State Warriors are distancing themselves from part owner Chamath Polyapatia this week after the billionaire said this. Nobody,
1: nobody cares, cares about what's happening to the Weakers, OK? You, you bring
0: it up because you really what? care. And I think it's nice nobody that cares? you care.
1: The rest of us don't care.
0: I'm just well, telling you, really you a care? very hard. Wait, wait, I'm you're telling you you're very, personally don't care. I'm
1: telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay, of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay, uh, of all the things that's... that I care about. It is below my line.
0: If you're not familiar, the Uyghurs are a Muslim ethnic minority group that has faced serious repression from the Chinese government for years now. Well over a million Uyghurs have been imprisoned in re-education camps. They're subject to rape, sterilization, and forced labor. Much of the world, including the U.S., has condemned China's campaign as outright genocide. But the NBA, notably, has not. The organization rakes in $5 billion a year from their partnerships in China. And because of that, the NBA, like most American businesses, does everything in its power to steer clear of having a stance on the Uyghur crisis. Now, the Warriors say polyapathia's views certainly don't reflect those of their organization. But make no statement of their own on the situation in Xinjiang, the province in China where this is taking place. So was the billionaire's comments reprehensible or a tough to swallow truth on how Americans view this situation? So... What do, we, what do we think about this? Well, I think obviously we should all care about what's happening, whether we call
1: it a genocide or just an like a incredibly nasty and evil crackdown on a group of people because of their ethnicity and their religion. Whatever you define it as, and the U.S. has called it a genocide, it's horrible and we should care. And so he's wrong to not care. But he is not alone. Um, He goes, at the end of this, he said, he goes, I stand for me uh, at the end of this interview. And the one thing I want to give him credit for is that he's one of the only honest people I've heard about this. Because I think so many people were clutching their pearls on the internet saying, I can't believe he said this. I can't believe he said this. And what I would want to know from those people is, do you buy goods from Nike, Apple, Coca-Cola, Adidas, Calvin Klein, Campbell Soup, Costco? You know, you can go down the list and say like, There are so many corporations in this country that we all depend upon that have problematic ties to that region and haven't cleansed themselves of their connection to that regime, the perpetrators of this violence, and we're all complicit in it. And what I wanna know from the people who get upset at him is like, what are you gonna do? Like, what are you gonna do to help solve this problem? And if you do nothing, it's functionally the same as not caring.
2: I think there's There's a difference in saying I don't care and saying, I can't fix this though there are a lot of different ways that he could have taken this and said, you know, listen, you're asking me about this because I'm a minority owner of one NBA team. I can't fix the world's problems. I'm donating to XYZ cause. I am I have charitable things that I do in my life and I I can't fix the weaker problem. That would have been totally fine with me, but he's also wrong in saying that nobody cares. 70% of Americans say that they'd rather take some financial losses and pay more for goods in order to Stand up to the human rights abuses in China. So people do care. And, you know, the people who can actually make a difference are people in C suites that are in these corporations that could swallow a little bit of a shaving off of their margin. And it's not you and I. And so to hear somebody with financial power say something like that is pretty disturbing. Although I would say one small wrinkle is that with the NBA, China's consuming their product versus with a company like Nike, like we're really talking about like a profit margin, which is really disturbing in the end.
1: Yeah. And with Nike, you know, there was this Uyghur uh, Forced Labor Protection Act, which passed Mm. Congress. And I want to be careful with my words here. It's Nike, Apple, Coca-Cola lobbied the bill. I don't want to say lobbied against the bill because who the heck knows what happens behind the scenes here. But it seems a little bit shady. And basically what was happening was, you know, bipartisan bill passed uh, essentially to force companies to break ties with this region. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like What happens in China is like the supply chain is really murky. And so these companies didn't want too stringent of rules applied to them. But what's clear to me is that these companies fight this stuff all the way to the bitter end. And there's some really... Now, there's some really depressing examples, like Intel, for example, issued a letter to its uh, suppliers saying that it was going to stop sourcing in the region. But then people in China started protesting them and they issued an apology uh, uh, for, for their previous statement. Um, and there's another company, the parent company, Zara, there was a very similar incident there where basically people... Have, they find a backbone for a second, and then they quickly recede into the background. Yeah. And, the, and the NBA is particularly bad here because yeah. he's a minority owner of the Golden State, whereas they issued a kind of general statement saying that uh, he doesn't speak for them. But what they didn't say is what their actual position is on this, and that's they not can't. an accident. Yeah, because they've got billions yeah. of dollars at, at stake here. And this reminds me of the LeBron situation mm-hmm. with you know Daryl Morey, the GM of the Rockets, who called out uh, China over the human rights in, in Hong Kong said he stood with the protesters and all these people in the NBA from Steve Kerr to Popovich to LeBron James who have so much to say about so many things both domestically and around the world couldn't find their words on Hong Kong uh, and China. Why? Because it's in their financial interests to be quiet on this and that's depressing.
2: Yeah, I think that's even worse than what Shamoff did. Like I'd rather someone just be like, honestly, I don't care than to care and then say, oh, wait, I uncare now that yeah. it matters financially to me. Like, and I LeBron actually think that's the worst.
1: LeBron criticized Maury.
0: I believe he wasn't educated on on, on the situation at hand and um, and he spoke. So that that pisses me off. Look, polyapathia is wrong to say nobody cares. I mean, Ricky just gave us a stat that clearly people in this country do care about this. And he was also wrong if he doesn't care. He's just morally wrong. However, I think there is a ton of hypocrisy going on here. I saw people like Tucker Carlson and Senator Tom Cotton out of Arkansas really doubling down, throwing this guy under the bus. And the reality is what China is doing to the Uyghurs is disgusting, it's reprehensible, it is abhorrent, but it mirrors what the United States did to the indigenous population in this continent, period. And we've got people in Florida that are trying to wipe that from the history books. So if we're going to stand up for human rights, then let's be consistent about it. I'd like to hear what Tucker Carlson has to say about what's going on in Burma or what's going on in in Congo or in South Sudan or in Ethiopia or in all these other countries where there are genocides taking place, there are human rights abuses taking place, and there are human rights abuses taking place right here in the United States of America. I mean, we had an interview about what's going on in Alabama's prison system. It's about to get taken over by the federal government because people are literally dying in there because of the type of human rights abuses that are happening their eighth amendment abuses as well and so if you're going to be you know stand up and speak out against a guy like this because he said something ignorant regarding china's human rights abuses i'm all for it but then be consistent i don't like the selective outrage because they're really just doing that for political reasons in my opinion
1: right yeah and following up to what ricky said too you know one thing i'm trying to figure out like how much do we credit people for acknowledging something versus doing something about it right so like i'm trying to think of like what how do we treat the 70% plus of people who say they would make a trade-off. You can make a trade-off. Like there are websites you can go to where you can find out where materials are. There are human rights groups that make recommendations on on products you could purchase. And you could just wear all H&M all the time. Do people do that? They don't. I don't do that. So I'm an effing hypocrite on this issue and that's what I'm trying to say is like when I look at him my instinct is to be like fuck this guy and then I'm like well what functionally is different about the way I live my life than the way this guy lives his life other than he has billions of dollars and I don't I still have a lot more money than most people on this planet and I don't make the right choice and so and but I want to like and the question is like is the energy well spent going after this guy and dunking on him or is it well spent looking inward and saying, how do I actually figure out where my money is going and is it going to the right place?
0: Absolutely. The man in the mirror. That's where, you, where, that's where it has to start. Yeah, I'm
1: asking him to make a change. Uh, yes, mm. yes. Yeah.
0: Take a look at yourself and make a change. Yeah. <laughs> now on to our next story, Tish, James, and Trump. So, Ravi, what is going on here with her investigation uh, into the Trump organization? Listeners and YouTube watchers, if you
1: hated what I had to say about Biden, you might love this particular segment. Here's what's going on here. So the the New York Attorney General's Tish James, uh, she has responsibility over the civil case against the Trump organization. And the Manhattan District Attorney, uh, Alvin Bragg, who's appeared on the show, has responsibility over the criminal case. And as full disclosure, I helped elect... Alvin Bragg. And when he was on the show, I pushed him um, on what I saw as a conflict of interest in that case, or at least some bias uh, that was present uh, in the election. And My issue here is Tish James just announced that there's been significant progress in this case. For the first time, we're getting details in what New York Attorney General Letitia James says is significant evidence of fraud committed by the Trump organization, outlining that it inflated the values of six Trump properties, including his golf courses. I'm not going to go into too much detail about what this case is about. It basically has to do with Trump inflating his assets in order to get favorable loans. And she seems to be signaling that she thinks she has him on a civil case on this and is going to be calling him uh, to testify. All of this to me is secondary to the fact that Tish James herself has a major problem in overseeing this case. Because when she ran for office, for this attorney general position in 2018. And multiple occasions, she signaled that she was gonna go after Trump. She used general language about how, like, Trump needed to worry about her and that she was gonna shine a light on, like, you know, all of his books, essentially, and, and, and find his wrongdoing. And it, they weren't specific claims. She wasn't like, there's this one, like piece of evidence that people are ignoring, this one crime that he did. She was basically, I'm gonna examine his history of criminal practice and get to the bottom of it. This is a problem because generally speaking, when you run for a position, a legal position, a political legal position, you should not make general claims about individuals and that you want to go after them. Right. That's like if I were running for, you know, prosecutor in Staten Island and I said, you know what, you know, Vito Facella, who's like a Republican in Staten Island, I think he's a criminal and I'm going to make sure that we hold him accountable. And then I get into office and I basically have a traffic cop follow him everywhere he goes so I can get him, you know, catch him doing something wrong. This is wrong. And when Democrats had the shoe on the other foot, Matthew Whitaker became the acting attorney general and he had previously made prejudicial statements about the Mueller investigation, and one Democrat after another, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Jerry Nadler, attorneys general around the country, uh, wrote letters saying this guy needs to recuse himself. And they were applying a principle to Whitaker that they refused to apply in this situation. And so do I think Trump has broken some law? It would not surprise me. But in the end, when you're talking about prosecuting anybody, especially the former president of the United States. Everything needs to be clean. This is not a clean investigation. She needs to recuse herself. And I think the fact that she has gone this far without recusing herself means to me that this entire investigation is suspect.
0: uh, And it really worries me. Very sus. Very sus indeed. It just reminds me of The Democrats have done this before with Trump. They did this with the Mueller investigation, this thing of, oh, we're going to find this smoking gun. We're going to find this thing against Trump. And then when that fizzled out, it was like, oh, never mind. And then, you know, the whole Ukraine thing happened. And that was a much more serious accusation, a much more serious possible crime that Trump committed. But then it, it didn't have as much of an effect because people were like, well, you've done this before. You've said this before with the Mueller investigation. And then the same thing with the Jan 6 stuff. It doesn't have as much of an effect when you constantly go into office. I mean, there were people, there was a senator, um, I think he was a congressman out of Texas. Uh, his name was uh, Al Green, not the singer. And <laughs> he was like, I'm, we're going to impeach Trump. Like he came in like in 2017 saying, we're going to impeach Trump for no reason. And so it's like when you keep saying that over and over and over again, then when there's actual, you know, it's like crying wolf. When there's actually something there, people don't believe it because you've just spent your whole time saying you're going to do this against this person just because they're politically different from you.
1: Yeah, and a lot of my friends on the left will say, well, he, he needs to, you know, he needs to abide by the law like anybody else. But the the very fact of some, some of these accusations to me, like she said during, I think this was during her acceptance speech. She said, I will shine a light into every dark corner of his real estate dealings, every dealing. So yeah, like everybody needs to abide by the law, but like, are you examining every aspect of this person's life to find the wrongdoing or is the wrongdoing brought to you and you're just following up on it? These are the questions I would want to ask.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, from my vantage point, it does sound a bit like a witch hunt. And I would say that on either side, whether or not I like Trump or whatever candidate it is, that that should never be a motivated sort of way of going after someone. But I'm curious, is there like any way that you think we can prevent people from campaigning on promises like this going forward?
1: Yeah, well, one thing I told uh, a left-leaning audience uh, about, you know, earlier this year or last year was imagine a situation where somebody runs for Attorney General of Arkansas, Republican, on the promise to go after the Clintons. And uh, in that situation, let's say they won and then they then open a civil and then criminal investigation of Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, et cetera. How would you feel? So I think this is important as people to have the shoe on the other foot. Now you're supposed to have like, you know, bar associations, et cetera, that hold people accountable to this kind of stuff, but they're so politicized. Mm -hmm. And I think it's safe to say that the New York bar is not filled with a lot of Trump fans. And so I'm not sure what they've had to say about this, but I would be surprised if they had too much to say about this. And, you know, when we had Alvin Bragg on the show, the Manhattan, Manhattan DA, I pushed him on this too, which is, you know, I supported him in that campaign. And I think that you know, I continue to think, and his office is not too far from here, that he needs to recuse himself from that too because that's even more serious. That's the criminal investigation. And so, uh, and and honestly, I love Alvin, but his answer was not very satisfactory. I've been thinking about it a lot since. You know, he said, "I I promised I would go after him. <laughs> so basically he's saying, I promised I'd go after him and I need to keep my campaign promise. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is the opposite of how this is supposed to work and it's not yeah. legitimate. And I would say that as much as inflating your real estate assets in order to get a favorable loan, sounds like the kind of thing that's wrong, I'm not sure it rises to the level of the kind of thing that we should be locking up a former president of the United States mm-hmm. in such a highly politicized environment for. Like I just, even, even if you put aside how this even came about
0: in front of us, it just doesn't feel right to me. All right, so let's move on to a story that Ricky is going to tell us about. What is going on in England? So
2: yesterday, Boris Johnson uh, announced that for England and not the entirety of the UK, they are going to roll back pretty much all major uh, COVID lockdown measures that they have in place. Mass mandates are going away, vaccine passports are going away, and there's no more recommendation to work from home. Um, and so he also said to parliament yesterday that this is essentially a concession that we're going to have to learn to live with COVID like it's the flu, um, because Omicron is sort of past its peak in um, in England now, and so I'm really excited about this because I I was worried that now that we have a kind of shifting um, danger that's facing us with COVID that. Leaders might not respond in the most pragmatic way and might still be holding on to some of the restrictions and the power with that. But this is kind of evidence that we're actually responding to an evolving threat. And so I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say.
1: Well, it was funny just trying to follow this story because I'm reading uh, BBC trying to get to the bottom, you know, what's going on. And they have reports of, you know, Northern Ireland may follow and Wales may follow. I'm like, wait a minute, what, like, it reminded me of Ted Lasso. There's like a part where he goes, how many countries are in this country? <laughs> I mean, he must be from England, yeah,
2: Wales that another country? Yes and no.
1: How many countries are in this country? I'm like,
2: <laughs> what's going on here? So
1: um, I'm still confused as to what the United Kingdom and England is, and it's been explained to me a hundred times, but um, I'll put that aside because he's the UK prime minister. So I don't yeah. know, but I'll put that aside... And admit to one embarrassing fact, which is my in reaction to this, just trying to marshal evidence for my pre existing biases. I was looking up hospital bed capacity in the UK versus the United States, just getting ready to be like, well, the difference is they have a better hospital bed capacity, <laughs> but which is not true, it turns out. <laughs> uh, US and UK have about the same hospital capacity and about the same amount of physicians and nurses wow. and things like that. So less guns over there though. So I don't have as much to marshal from this other than to say I, I stand by to see how this goes.
0: Yeah, so there's England, there's Wales, and there's Scotland, though. But, um, no, <laughs> and Northern I, Ireland. Yeah, and there's Northern <laughs> Ireland, and yeah, it's all one thing, but it's all different, too, at the same time. But um I think this could be a model for the United States, as well as just other countries, to figure out a way to still take COVID-19 serious, but also... Get back to normal because yeah. we just can't. I mean, this is like the third year of this now. Like we just can't keep, you know. But but like we've talked about it before, there is this like pandemic class that enjoys mm-hmm. these restrictions, like people who are super introverted. It, somebody calls it a pajama class. Right? Yeah, they love to work from home. They love to stay away from crowds. They love to wear the mask. They've just created into a whole political identity. So I feel like it would be more difficult here in the United States for, for us to do stuff like England. And I feel like there would be like a left wing political pushback to it.
1: Well, Ricky, I had a question for you on this because part mm-hmm. of that. What was surprising to me is, you know, it's a different type of system. It's a parliamentary system, so it's not federalist like us. So yeah. When the government says it, it essentially happens yeah. across the country. And what he was rolling back is such an interesting combination of policies because a lot of them will seem familiar to us, but one of them stood out to me, which was this work-from-home guidance, which mm-hmm. essentially, it seems to me like— England had been under a an advisory to work from home and i guess people followed that there like essentially people even yeah. more than in the united states weren't going into the office like here at lost at debate everybody's here we're all in person i don't even know what the guidance is from the cdc is anymore on whether you should go into the office but i know a lot of people are aren't following that
2: yeah you know? i mean one of the things that johnson said was one of the reasons that they were rolling it back was because people complied so much which Um, I mean, I think some of those restrictions were probably a bit unreasonable. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a different situation here because we're a little bit behind in terms of Omicron. England and especially London peaked before us. And we also have a much bigger country. So different waves are happening in different places. And I think, you know, there's still little pockets where Delta is still kind of at play. But um, yeah, I mean, we definitely have a different system. And if we wanna roll back mandates, that does have to happen on a more local level. But this is a great model and this follows Spain and even Australia now is kind of saying, we're gonna live with this in an endemic way. And I think that we'd all probably benefit in doing that and then saying, okay, here's our very specific at-risk demographics and population that we need to continue to make sure that there's a space for them in society to live healthy and safe lives. And everyone else can kind of continue <laughs> Yeah. which i'm i'm all here for
0: <laughs> when am i going to be able to go to a bar in new york without having to show my vex card that's <laughs> what i want to know i think it's hard to say and
1: that's why I think people need to learn from this kind of stuff. Like, you know, joking aside about the kind yeah. of evidence I wanted to marshal, I do think that there is a problem in this country where, of of learning from available evidence, mm-hmm. right? Like Sweden, yeah. for example, like there was this, this massive rejection of Sweden as an idea early on in this pandemic when they were more permissive and were less mm-hmm. restrictive than other countries. And because people on the left saw people on the right using Sweden as evidence of... Uh, of a different, better kind of COVID policy, people immediately rejected it because they rejected the people sharing the anecdote. But I think if you look back on it, uh, at least from what I've seen, Sweden is a a really interesting case study because The Economist was ranking how different countries have fared during the pandemic, and Sweden did pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so if that's true, and if the UK uh, or England, in coming out of uh, these restrictions, fares better than other more restrictive places, we need to learn from that. And... Um, there's so, it's a controlled experiment right now. You can compare it to places like Hong Kong, for example, which is going in the opposite direction where they cancel yeah. uh, classes for secondary school. And, but I worry about our ability to do this. Like I was doing an interview yesterday in different contexts where this pollster, this democratic pollster was making one claim after another that to me didn't seem accurate. Like we were talking about, um, like we still need to keep people home and school closures worked and all this. And then I went to go look up the data after the interview. It's hard to fact check people in real time. I looked at the data and there's very little evidence that uh, sustained school closures actually help prevent community spread over time.
0: Well, hopefully we can get back to some sense of uh, normalcy here in New York City. But I think that is going to be the end of our show. We thank you all for watching. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and also listen to us on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you guys for watching. We'll see you next time.